Well, Luke chapter 12 will be the focus of our attention again this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, I encourage you to find your way over to Luke chapter 12. And we'll be picking up uh, in the same verses that we had last week with the second half of the message that I have titled, Forsaking Worthless Worries for a Kingdom Beyond Compare. Now, if you've been keeping up with the news as I have, this last 24, 25 and a half hours have been a very, very difficult news cycle. Just in this short period of time, we've seen horrific and senseless tragedy through two mass shootings here on American shore. And if you've been watching those headlines, you know that El Paso, Texas received the worst of these just a little before this time yesterday at 10.30, somewhere shortly thereafter, as a crazed 21-year-old man ranting about a Hispanic invasion shot individuals in a local Walmart, leaving 20 dead and 26 wounded before he was arrested without incident. And then at 1 a.m. overnight in Dayton, Ohio, another gunman began shooting outside of a bar in a popular area downtown wearing protective armor. So this obviously wasn't just some immediate dispute between individuals at a bar. And in the wake of his shooting, there are nine dead and 16 wounded as of the last headlines that I saw before the suspected officers. Suspect was, was ultimately shot by the officers who responded to that incident. Responding to the El Paso tragedy, the the Walmart CEO recalled an event even earlier in this same week when on Tuesday, a suspended employee walked into a Mississippi store and killed two of his co-workers. And so he responded with grief, obviously in his post, which which he posted on Instagram saying, I can't believe I'm sending a note like this twice in one week. Likewise, we can't believe that this sort of thing happens twice in one 24-hour cycle. This executive said, my heart aches for the community in El Paso, especially the associates and the customers at store 2201. And the families of the victims of today's tragedy. I'm praying for them all. And I hope you will join me. And and certainly church. I hope we are joining in this prayer. Because friends these are the moments that remind us. That we need something so much greater. Than what we find here on this earth. We need something so much greater than the fallen humanity which chooses to do such vile things against the image bearers of God's very image. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come. And we pray, come not only in the sense that he is coming and he is going to make his real literal kingdom here on earth, but we pray in the sense that let your kingdom come through the actions that you bring through your church the actions that you bring as your gospel goes forward the actions that your gospel causes to happen because broken sinners are ransomed and redeemed and come to find that there's something so much greater than whatever hatred whatever malice was formerly in their hearts and i don't know about you But the thought of how prevalent this sort of trend is becoming in our nation, in our world, is troubling to me. And the temptation is for us to look at every public gathering as a potential massacre. And that temptation is strong, I know. And if we're not careful, the worry over events like this can cripple our mission as the church. You may be tempted to lock yourself in your home and never be found again in the public square because let's face the facts. Things are going from bad to worse and they're going to get worse. The Bible never deceived us that anything different than that would happen. And yet Jesus calls for us to take the gospel to the lost individuals both at home and abroad. And if we're going to live that mission out, then we must be willing to step out in faith and allow ourselves to be vulnerable in the public 
square. Trusting in the God and Father who goes with us where he sends us and gives us all that we need to press forward in his mission. There's nothing more that the tempter would love to do than to cripple us by our worries such that God's people stay hemmed up in their homes and the gospel makes no advance and sinners perish flying into hell. We began our look last Sunday at Jesus' words on anxiety, which we noted is an American epidemic. In fact, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in America we talked about last week. They affect over 18% of the American population every year. And according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, that's a great statistic that consumes a large swath of our population. And we discussed last week how worry is an English word that has this linguistic history that ties it back to a German word which ultimately means to choke or to suffocate which is similar to what Jesus described happening in the parable of the sower, the parable of the seeds as some of the seed fell among the rocky soil and some of it fell among the thorns and that which fell among the thorns grew up and was choked by the weeds. And Jesus says that that's ultimately like those who are choked by the worries and the riches and the pleasures of life such that they produce no fruit in their walk with God. They receive the gospel, but the worries choke them and they're suffocated and they're unable to bring forth the fruit that God desires We also discussed how this word that's translated worry gives us this Greek heritage in our Bibles. When we look at the word, the the word originally comes from a Greek word which means to divide. That gives us a little bit of an understanding of the contrast that Jesus points out for us when we come to Luke chapter 12 as ultimately he's talking about the potential that each of us would be divided by the temporary cares of this world, the anxieties of this world, the worries of this world instead of being focused on him, focused on his kingdom. And so when Jesus is describing here for us our worries, he's talking about the things which ultimately cause us not to pursue his kingdom. Things that divide us away from his will for us. And so we find ourselves with divisions in our own hearts. Divisions that that keep us from pursuing his will. Divisions that say things to ourselves like it's dangerous out there. And so I should just stay here where it's safe. As opposed to saying, I'm going to allow myself to be vulnerable. I'm going to go to where he has sent me. I'm going to trust in his care over me. And worry paralyzes individuals. It's like rocking in a rocking chair, swinging in a swing, or riding an exercise bike, or walking on a treadmill. It gives you something to do, but it takes you nowhere. Worry occupies the mind, but it does not advance God's kingdom. It chokes the believer. It suffocates his spiritual maturity. And so Jesus makes clear for us the worthlessness of worry, as we looked at last week. And we need to understand the worthlessness of worry so that we will determine in our hearts to replace worry with fear of the living God and forsake our worries in order that we might pursue a kingdom that is beyond compare. That's the remedy for worry that Jesus points us to next in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 34. So join me now in that passage, if you will. We'll read again the worthlessness of worry and then transition our focus into this kingdom That is beyond compare. But if you're able, I'd ask that you'd stand and we might honor the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 22. And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable 
you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon, all of his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep on worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me just remind you of the context that we're dealing with here. Jesus is teaching the crowds, and in this particular stretch of teaching, he began by warning the crowds against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and how ultimately the crowds should be afraid of God who can cast them into hell instead of their fellow men who could only kill them, could only destroy their bodies. And in fact, I can think of no better passage to tie together today's message and the horror of this last 25 and a half hours of events in our country than what Jesus says in verses 4 and 5. That's where he says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Can the terrorist, can the crazed maniac take our lives? Yes, these individuals can. Can they take away the eternal rewards that Jesus gives to those who know him? No, they cannot. They will not. And so we must learn to ultimately yield our allegiance to the one who holds eternity in his hands. That's why Jesus teaches us earlier in Luke chapter 12, these very words of who we ought to fear. Then he gets interrupted by a man who wanted him to straighten out this inheritance dispute between he and his brother. And when Jesus hears this man's request, he responds with this word of warning about being greedy. We talked about this word greed ultimately just means wanting more. How what you have is never enough to where you're constantly desiring more and seeking more. And and what is it that you want? Just a little bit more. That insatiable sort of appetite to always have more is what Jesus took on. And in the face of this one who comes to him with his inheritance dispute. And Jesus illustrated just before this passage that we've read here today through a parable that he speaks in verse 15. the, The dangers of greed as he says, be on your guard against every form of greed for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions these things you've got here on earth my friends they do not make up your life your life is so much greater than that and then that parable that jesus gave to illustrate what he's teaching here he he tells us about a man whose life was wrapped up in his possessions his life was wrapped up in the stuff he could get here on earth He thought he could take ease. He thought he could eat, drink, and be merry for many years while God actually demanded of that man his very life before those years could ever be enjoyed. That man thought he consisted, his life consisted of his possessions, but he found out that he was terribly wrong. His focus on his riches called him to ultimately Store up treasures for himself, but not to be rich toward God. And that's what greed does to us. And so in verse 22, Jesus says, For this reason, for what reason? That is because life consists of more than what you possess. Life is more than what you could just be greedy about here on earth. For this reason, 
I say to you, do not worry. That's what Jesus tells us in verse 22. And, and as Jesus says these words, according to the beginning of verse 22, he's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to those who are following him. And in fact, in the words of the passage that we're going to get to in the latter verses today, we're going to hear him speaking in these familiar terms. Your father knows what you need. He's speaking to those who know God as their father. And so the reality of that is when Jesus tells those who know that God is their father, those who are his disciples, who are following him, when he tells them, be anxious for nothing, when he tells them, do not worry, it's essentially showing us that you can be a follower of Jesus and still be characterized by worry in your life. But that's not God's design for you. That's not his plan. That's not his desire for your life. Because again, worry suffocates. Worry chokes. Worry will cause you to diminish your life rather than to extend it. And so Jesus got a word about worry for his disciples. And we looked at that last week. We ultimately looked at this truth that worrying is worthless. And as we looked into that truth, we saw four reasons why worrying is worthless in the earlier verses of this passage by way of quick review. When you worry, you miss more important matters. That's what we see in verses 22 and 23. Jesus focused in on even the most essential needs that you and I could think of what we would need any any given day. Food and clothing. Those are things which are vital to our lives. Even when considering these essential basic needs, Jesus showed us in verse 23 that life is more than food and the body more than clothing. For this reason, we should not worry about even these most basic, essential things. And if we shouldn't worry about essentials like that, how much less should we worry about the non-essentials in our lives? Yes, when you worry, you miss more important matters. That was the first reason we saw for how worrying is worthless. The second was, when you worry, you confuse God's care for his creatures. Jesus pointed us to nature in verses 24 and 27 and 28 to show us how the ravens are fed by God and the lilies are clothed by God. These creatures of his are less valuable to to God than, than we are to him as his image bearers. And yet God cares for the essential needs of those less important creatures. And Jesus is showing us that we should not worry because God cares for his creatures. To worry is to confuse his role in caring for what he creates. So when you worry, you confuse God's care for his creatures. That was the second reason we saw as to why worrying is worthless. The third that we saw was when you worry, you lack the ability to lengthen your life. In verse 25, Jesus points out that when we worry, we can't even add a single hour. We can't even add 18 inches. We looked at it in the literal Greek verbiage that Jesus used. We can't even add that much to our life spans. And we discussed how research reveals, in fact, that those who are consumed by worry live shorter lives on average. I read about an English executive who decided to do all of his worrying on one day of the week. He chose Wednesdays, and when anything happened that gave him anxiety, he would write it down, and then he would put it in a worry box, and he would block it out of his mind until the following Wednesday. The interesting thing that this executive found was that on the following Wednesday, when he opened his worry box, most of the things that had disturbed him over the past six days either didn't come to pass or they were already settled by the time that his time of worrying came around. He would have added no value to his life by worrying about these things. And the same thing's true for all of us. Worrying has no benefits for us, only disadvantages. And when you worry, you lack the ability to lengthen your life. That's the third lesson we saw as to why worrying is worthless. The last one was this. When you worry, you fade out your faith. That's the essence of what Jesus says in the latter half of verse 28 through the beginning of verse 30. To worry is to have little faith. To spend one's life up in the pursuit of food and drink and a variety of other material needs is to seek after the same things that the nations seek. The same things that people who do not know Christ 
which seek after it. And how could we blame them for anything less than that? If you don't think there's an eternal hope, why not live for today? Why not live for the material things? So we can see why the nations would do that. But what about those who know of Christ? What about those who know of an eternity? What about those who know of one who has gone to prepare a place for them? So that where he is, they may be also. Should our lives not be different than the nations around us who do not know Christ when it comes to our worrying? And I just ask you, is there a distinct difference in your life between what you're seeking and what your family members or your friends or your co-workers who don't know Christ are seeking? Because there ought to be a distinction in us. And if you're a true Christian who's choked by worries, just take an inventory of what you must believe in order to get to that point, okay? I mean, to be a true Christian, you must believe that God can redeem you. You also must believe that God has broken you free from the shackles of Satan, which once held you in bondage. You even, if you're a Christian, believe that one day God is going to take you into heaven, put you into his physical kingdom, and give you eternal life. If you're a Christian, you surely believe all of those things. But if you're a Christian who worries, in spite of the fact that you believe that God can, through Christ, accomplish all of those things, you are in effect saying that you don't think God can be trusted to get you through the next few days. Do you see the contradiction here? How can we trust that God will accomplish great things like taking us to heaven without trusting that he'll do the little things to get us through the next few days friends if you can trust him with your eternity then you can trust him with the next few days so stop worrying pastor and author tim keller has this to say he says anxiety is a daily statement to god saying i don't think you have my best interest in mind and when you worry you fade out your faith which concludes our reminders about why worrying is worthless. But not only is worrying worthless, there's an alternative that Jesus presents in these verses that I want you to see, and it's this. God's kingdom is incomparably worthy. So with the remainder of our time today, I want to show you from verses 30 to 34, three reasons why no other pursuit can compare with the kingdom of God. Here's the first. The kingdom is in the power of a perceptive provider. That's what Jesus says in the latter half of verse 30. He says, your father knows that you need these things. What things is he talking about? The essentials of life that were mentioned earlier in that verse. The essentials of life mentioned and kind of characteristic of the entire passage that we've read. What you will eat, what you will drink, what you will put on. The other essentials of life. God is perceptive. He knows what you need for example have you just lost your job and now you need a job well guess what god knows that when you pray to him you reach out to a father who knows these things and who has the power to deal with these things so be confident in what you request from him the father knows what your needs are And why shouldn't we worry over those things? Because we who know Christ as Lord have a king who knows that we need these things. And he promises to add these things to us if we will seek his kingdom. That is, God is not only perceptive, he is a powerful provider. That's what verse 31 says. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. When we talk about God's kingdom... We're simply talking about that over which he has dominion, that over which he rules and reigns. His kingdom advances when one sinner repents and yields his or her life to the sovereign king. We seek his kingdom when we yield up our divided, worry-filled lives. And when we say that we are going to lay our worries aside and we are going to pursue God in undivided pursuit, Seeking him 
with our lives, letting him direct our paths. And this kingdom will ultimately be manifested. This kingdom we talk about, when we talk about the kingdom of God, will ultimately be manifested when Jesus comes again to literally rule over his people here on earth. And so we seek God's kingdom. And when we do, we're seeking the subjugation of all peoples in this fallen world, including ourselves, to the God who rightfully deserves to reign over all of us. And as I mentioned last week, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 are pretty much the same sermon that Luke records for us. Probably a different preaching event, but Jesus is teaching the same sort of teaching because this is rich for all peoples at all times and all locations. It's rich for us. But in Matthew 6, 33, we read, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In this parallel of what we're reading today, Jesus has a word of priority. This word first, he's in essence telling us that as we seek his kingdom, here in verse 31, What we are doing is aligning properly our priorities. And you know, for a long time, a common phrase of priorities among Americans has been God, family, country. But a 2015 survey by a group known as the Barna Group found that the practicality of that order has changed. When individuals were asked, how much are each of the following a part of your personal identity 62% of Americans said that family was a part of their personal identity. 52% said that being an American was part of their personal identity, but only 38% of Americans surveyed said religious faith was a part of their personal identity. In spite of our traditional statement of priorities, Americans are not, by and large, living with a kingdom-first sort of mentality. But I suppose we could expect that from a materialistic sort of society. The real question I have for you is this. What are those of you who gather here to worship him doing? How are you faring and seeking his kingdom first? Are you seeking the Father's kingdom and his righteousness first? Have you been saved? Have you subjected your life to the king's dominion? Or are you living for yourself? When you put your calendar together for the coming day or for the coming week or for the coming year, what are the first big blocks you're going to block out to ensure that nothing else crosses over? Are you going to block out the time that you can have with the Lord? The time you can spend praying to Him, sharing in fellowship with Him, reading His Word, His revelation to us, serving Him in some capacity, loving on others in His name? Are are those the foundational first blocks that you put into your calendar? Are you building out the other things first and then giving God the leftovers? Do you prioritize gathering with the, the flock of God to worship Him? Or does He get the leftovers? Do you allow God's will for you to drive your decisions, to drive your actions, to drive your attitudes? Or are you seeking your own kingdom? And giving God the occasional hour on Sunday or whatever is left with your schedule. Friends, we need to seek His kingdom first. In this passage, Jesus reduces our seeking to two categories. We're either seeking what's temporary and fading or we're seeking God's kingdom and His righteousness. Seeking the former, the temporary things will make us anxious. It will make us worried because these things will fail. But seeking God and his kingdom will give us a peace that passes all human understanding. And so Jesus gives us the key here to open the door from freedom and for, for freedom from worry and from anxiety. And so do you want to have a hope which is steadfast and sure and a treasure that you don't have to worry about losing? Then every day we must wake up and make the decision that we're going to seek a kingdom which will never fade. And then choose every day to be wrapped up in the work of that kingdom. And to let our hopes be wrapped up in that kingdom. Because when our hopes are wrapped up in his kingdom, our hopes will never fail. Because his kingdom will never fail. You say, that sounds good, but how do I do that? 
If, if I'm going to seek God's kingdom, what, is, what does that mean? Does that mean, okay, now I need, to, like, I need to go join the mission field. I need to go overseas and share the gospel. Or I, you know, I, need to, I need to go to some seminary or commit my life to, to serve Jesus, some sort of full-time service. Well, that's obviously not the case. Any of us can seek God's kingdom first by putting God first, by, by putting him as the Lord of, over everything that we do in our lives and aiming to further his rule over us and over others in whatever context he places us in. It could be in the workplace. It, it could be in your family. It, it could be as you go and serve in some sort of community organization in all of these avenues of life. We can ultimately seek his kingdom. We can, we can seek to bring his rule to bear over all as we share his grace, as we make known the glorious gospel that he's granted to us through Christ. And so let me ask you, are there areas of your life where you're not seeking God's kingdom? Maybe there's some worry that you have not yet yielded to him. Maybe there's some forgiveness that you're holding back Maybe there's some habit that you refuse to walk away from. And all these things, I say, seek Him first. God's kingdom is incomparably worthy. So move your thoughts up to the divine level. And God promises that He will take care of your physical needs when you seek His kingdom first. Because listen to this. The call of God will never take you to a place where the grace of God cannot sustain you. Like any good father, God wants to free his children from being wasting all of their time on things that really don't matter for the long haul. Matthew's account of this teaching of Jesus really drives home how seeking God's kingdom first and his righteousness contrasts with our worries. After that command in Matthew 6.33, the master says this in verse 34. He says, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. By that, Jesus is is saying that ultimately, our Heavenly Father has tomorrow in His hands. And my friends, our Father knows tomorrow. Our Father controls tomorrow. We can trust Him with our tomorrows. The Christian who worries is ultimately saying, God, I know you mean well by what you say, but I'm just not sure you can pull it off. So what's the remedy? The remedy is to seek God's kingdom, to let him deal with the circumstances. It's to say, if I'm pursuing your kingdom and trials come upon me, I won't be dismayed because every trial is an opportunity. Every unexpected circumstance is an opportunity to pursue you and to show the world that you are more than the circumstances, more valuable, more treasurable, more to be sought after than anything I'm facing here and now. That's what Peter conveys in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Yes, there is the kingdom that is in the power of a perceptive provider. That's the first reason why no other pursuit can compare with the kingdom of God. Here's the second. The kingdom is made fearless by a favorable father. I love what Jesus says in verse 32. With a term of endearment, he refers to his disciples. He refers to those of us who follow him as his little flock. He knows we're weak. He knows we're fearful. He knows we're prone to wander away like the sheep of a little flock. He knows that we're prone to worry. He knows that we're prone to be fearful. He knows that we, we are uncertain about what tomorrow holds and it throws us off of our game. And yet he says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Maybe you're here today and you're worried that you're going to miss God's kingdom. Maybe you're worried that if, that if you commit yourself to serving his kingdom, you're not going to find it. Because there's some deficiency that's within you. Maybe you think, surely God is going to withhold his kingdom from me because of my past and all of my regrets. Maybe you think, I'm not good enough. Well, when when the Japanese invaded northern China before World War II, Gladys 
Aylward was serving as a missionary among the Yangqing. She was forced to flee the city with the charge of a hundred orphans. It was a task that ultimately led her to despair. While hiding in the mountains, she spent sleepless nights worrying about what they would do to make it for safety. But after one of those sleepless nights, a 13-year-old orphan girl came to her and reminded her about Moses, empowered by God, parting the Red Sea. And Gladys somberly responded to this young girl's statement by saying, but I'm not Moses. But that wise little orphan girl replied, of course you aren't, but Jehovah is still God. And friends, the same God who has brought about the transformation of so many individuals is not impacted by your own flawed history. He is still the God who has reached down into history and has made the difference through Christ our Lord. And so I don't care what flaws may exist in your character. I don't care how broken or regretful you may be over your flawed composition. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you seek the heavenly Father's kingdom, he will gladly give you what you are after. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. His kingdom is not like an Easter egg hunt. You don't have to search for it, wondering if you'll ever find it. It's not hidden such that you will miss it. No, it delights the Father to give us his royal possession. He has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And this makes our pursuit of his kingdom fearless. He does not resent giving it to us. And it may be true that it would be hard for us to find the kingdom ourselves. But the good news is that God has brought his kingdom down to us. The king himself, the Lord Jesus, has come to reveal the kingdom to you. It's impossible for you to find that kingdom on your own. You are marred by sin. You have rejected God with your thoughts and your words and your actions. We all have. A sinner like that can't dwell in the presence of Almighty God. But Jesus came to turn sinners who are like that into children who have been forgiven and washed and made new. They've been ransomed and redeemed as Jesus has died in our place as he offers the righteousness that was his as a free gift to those who come to him by faith. And so the kingdom, which would otherwise be an impossible thing for us to obtain, is in fact the thing that God now delights to give to us because Christ has come. So there's no need to fear missing the kingdom we seek. If this is our heart, seeking the kingdom, then we can rejoice to know that God has gladly chosen to give his kingdom to us. This is grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. The kingdom is made fearless by a favorable father. That's the second reason why no other pursuit can compare with the kingdom of God. Here's the final reason. The kingdom offers treasure that will not tarnish. Jesus gives a hard command in verse 33. That's where he says, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. And I'll bet I've read the perspective of a dozen commentators on this passage over the last couple of weeks. And many of them seem to take this same cautious approach they seem to say something like this well jesus didn't really mean for us to sell our possessions and give to charity because we can see that individuals who were in the early church were free to keep their houses for example john who was this close follower of jesus obviously had a house as he hung on the cross and jesus jesus hanging on the cross said to john Son, behold your mother. And at that point we read that John took her into his house. So John couldn't have sold all his possessions. He wouldn't have had a house to take Mary, Jesus' mother, into as Jesus hung on the cross. But, but you know, I look at this verse and I just have to wonder, can we really explain this verse, this command of Jesus away so easily? 
I mean, this is a radical call to obedience, to be sure. Jesus is calling for individuals to sell their possessions and give to a kingdom that will endure for longer than they would. He's saying that, that when we do that, when we sell those treasures which would otherwise, otherwise perish, we are building an unfailing treasure. That could also be translated as an inexhaustible treasure in heaven. And I'll say this, this verse doesn't tell us to sell all of our possessions. That word all is not here in Luke's gospel in verse 33. So I can't help but wonder, should we who are able not be doing this very thing? Like if Jesus really commands us to sell our possessions and give to charity, why is this not characteristic more often in what we see in our churches? Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Verses 17 and 19. He said, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. You know, you might think, oh, well, this is for the rich people. That's not me. Hold on a minute. We'll get to it. But on, but on God, who richly supplies with all things to enjoy, instruct them, instruct the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now you say, well, I'm not rich, so I'm free from that passage. Well, friend, if you were to compare your income to what the rest of the world lives off of, I think what you would find is that most of us are drastically rich compared to the rest of our world. And yet, what do we find? Is anyone selling his or her possessions, even just some of them, in order to give to charity, in order to give to those in need, in order to give to causes which advance his kingdom? To think of this in the context of the church, I heard of a man who one day inherited a great fortune. He didn't know about it. His attorneys knew about it. He inherited $10 million dollars. And his attorneys wanted him to know about it, but this man had a heart condition. So they were worried if he learned that he had inherited $10 million, he was going to have a heart attack and die. And so they reached out to this man's pastor and said, you know, would you mind kind of finding a, a nice way to relay this news to this man so that he wouldn't get too upset, he wouldn't have a heart attack and die? So the pastor said, yeah, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And he thought for a little bit, and finally he approached the man, and, and he just gave him a little hypothetical question. He said, I, I just wanted to ask you hypothetically, if, if you were to suddenly receive a gift of $10 million, what would you do with it? He thought, I'll just kind of ease into this conversation. And, and the man said to him, well, if I received $10 million, I would give half of it to the church right away. Well, would you know that man never had a chance to have a heart attack and die? Because at that moment, the pastor had a heart attack and died. Should we not expect all of those who follow Jesus and who are able to be convicted by his command here such that we would see generous giving happening as a regular occurrence in the church of those who follow Jesus? And if we're not, is that not an indication that our treasure is in the wrong place? Are we buying into treasures that will ultimately tarnish Jesus says in verse 34, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That is, your heart follows your treasure. Wherever you put your, your treasure, your heart's going to run after to be at that place. And we all have a choice of where we're going to place our treasure. And your heart will then follow that treasure. So therefore, I urge you, send your treasure chest up to the everlasting city. Lay your treasure up in those everlasting heights, in that land where you shall one day go yourself. And you may say, how can I do that? Well, there are many ways that you can send your treasures up before you into heaven. That great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once said that God's poor are his money boxes. You can pass your treasure over to heaven by their means. Likewise, I say that those who are on the front lines of God's kingdom advance and serving as missionaries or serving as servants in the ministry of some gospel interest are serving in a kingdom sort of capacity and can be the instruments by which you place your heavenly investments. 
And so I urge you to give to missions. Give to the church. Give to the poor. Give gladly and joyously in order to give your heart something to follow after with joy as you fill up your treasures in heaven and set your desires on enjoying the treasures that you've set up forevermore where no thief can steal, where no robber can take away. God is not calling you to give away your most prized possessions. Let me state that again. God is not calling you to give up your most prized possessions. God is calling for you to change your most prized possessions. And when you do, giving anything else away won't cause you to lose your prize. You won't be zapped by your charity. It will be increased when your treasure is laid up in the heavenly realm. This has implications for our worry as well. Hudson Taylor, who is a missionary to China and founder of what is now known as the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, gave this excellent advice. He said, let us give up our work, our plans, ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, our influence, our all, right into God's hand. And then when we have given it all over to him, there will be nothing left for us to be troubled about. This has implications, not just for us as individuals. This has implications for us as the body of Christ, as the church. We must not be content to only grow a gathering. If we are not flowing God's riches into the lives of others, as we've stated, as kind of the ultimate destination for everyone who is engaged through this fellowship. If we are not taking those riches and flowing into the lives of others with God's grace, with the good news of his son lifted up for a needy world. If we're not sharing that with those who are in desperate need of this good news, then we have fallen short. If we only give individuals a gift bag and a good show and a brief message that makes them feel good, then we have not given them enough. If our only call is for Christians to come back next week, then we are falling sorely short of the Great Commission. The question is, are we ready for God to enact through us a vision that is so much greater, so much more glorious than just a happy bunch of weekly worshipers? Are we ready for God to refine our aim to multiply his glory on the earth through our sacrifices? Are we willing to let God have our priorities and our possessions if yielding those up will further his kingdom? We must learn to seek his kingdom first we must not be content to point individuals to the content that we can manufacture without calling them to give everything to the god who can do so much more than we could even begin to imagine we must have a heart which ultimately aims to direct individuals to praise their maker more than we want to entertain them with our production. Oh, that we would become a church which was content to lose our comfortable cars and our comfortable homes and our comfortable seats and, yea, even our comfortable lives. If so doing, would cause his kingdom to be expanded here on the earth. The Titanic, that faded ship that went down on April the 14th, 1912, was about 380 miles southeast of Newfoundland during its maiden voyage. The ship had previously unheard of amenities. I mean, things like you would not find anywhere else when you talk about the creature comforts. It boasted a mahogany-paneled smoking room, a swimming pool, a squash court. Unfortunately, though, there was one thing that it did not have, and that was enough lifeboats for the 2,230, 223 passengers who were on board. And so many of them perished. 1,517, in fact, perished. And you know, it's a danger for each and every one of us. It's a danger for us individually. It's a danger for us as a church that we would have all the good things that look good on the outside, but that we would miss the most important thing. And so we must learn to seek his kingdom first. We must learn to pursue, ultimately, treasures that will endure beyond what we might experience here on earth. 
when the ship known as the Titanic came to its end, the most important thing was missing. But I've got to ask you, when your life comes to an end, is that going to be your testimony? When you reach that heavenly realm, when you meet your maker face to face, is that most important thing going to be missing? Have you stored up the treasure already that you are longing to seek? Have have you stored up that treasure that you are pursuing with your life? Have you given your heart to Christ? Because my friends, God gladly delights as a father to give to his children the kingdom. And if you don't have that as your treasure, if, you, if you've not received Christ as the one who would ultimately be the new ambition of your life, and friends, you are missing the lifeboat. You're missing the most important thing. And likewise, I think all of us need to take inventory in light of this radical, difficult charge of Jesus to say, am I really, I mean, is the proof really in the pudding? Am I really seeking his kingdom first? Like if I pull out my bank ledger, is that the testimony of my life? If, if I pull out my calendar, is that the testimony of my life? And the challenge is great, my friends, but there is no treasure that can compare. There is nothing that will endure like the treasures we lay up in the realm where we shall reign forevermore with Christ our King. And so I say, friends, if you don't have treasure there, put it there. Give your treasure to God Almighty and you will never regret that decision. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we don't deserve to have an account with you We don't deserve to have a place where we can one day go and enjoy treasures in your presence. But God, grace, oh, grace has made the difference for us. Unmerited favor, that which we do not deserve, richly on display through Christ who has come and has died in our stead. Through Christ who has come and has risen from the grave and has has promised a hope eternal for those who will place their faith in him. So God, we come as those who ultimately have an account that has been opened for us by Jesus Christ. And Lord, there are some here who need to establish that account. There are some who need to lift that treasure box up by yielding their lives to Christ. And Father, I just pray that in, in light of your word, in light of what you're calling us to do here on this day, that you would draw broken, weary sinners into what you gladly give to those who come and seek your kingdom. That you would give eternal life, O Lord, to those who would turn away from their sins and turn to you, Lord, knowing that you offer a treasure which will not tarnish. Father, forgive us for our own pursuits. Forgive us how we get wrapped up in the things of this world. Forgive us when we lose sight of the ultimate treasure and find ourselves wasting our time here on earth. God, give us a heart for pursuing you, I pray. God, let your word not fall fallow on our hearts. But let us truly, O Lord, in this day, seek your kingdom and your righteousness first. And may this be the testimony of our lives, the testimony of this church. As we yield it all to you, O Lord, our anxieties, our worries, our eternal hopes. Because God, these things are safe with you and we trust in your care thank you for your word which causes and reminds us of these things lord and i pray that now in these moments if there's some need that needs to be responded to some prayer that needs to be made some turning away from something which is falling short of your treasures that needs to happen in the lives of your people that you by the power of your spirit would give us the courage O lord to live in obedience for a treasure that will never fade away i pray in jesus name amen